while it's terrible that it took murder for many runners to wake up to the social injustices that we face in America, I'm excited that it ignited a group of people who know what it means to keep momentum going. Because that's what this movement needs. This movement needs momentum. And every single runner knows what that means when I say that. So I'm excited to see a group of individuals that has grown over the last few months take action to make change, to influence their networks, to diversify our sport, and to not stop until they can put their hands down and say like, whew, okay, <laughs> like I think I did something today. And then do it again tomorrow because that's what we do too. So that excites me. That's Camila Jornet. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Camila Jornet. Camila is a native of Southern California and began running track in junior high school. She told her coach that she wanted to be a 100-meter runner, eventually found her way into cross-country, and, well, let's just say she discovered her happy place to be somewhere in between. Camila, who has a personal best of 451 in the mile, ran collegiately at UC San Diego. She coached high school cross-country and track for a little bit and has worked in marketing in both the running and outdoor industries. In this episode, Camila told me about her introduction to the sport and how her relationship with it has evolved over the years, how her competitiveness manifested itself when she got into running, and the attraction to majoring in communications in college and how that field of study has shaped the way that she looks at the world and approaches her work. We also talked about what it means to be black in America, what it's like being a black woman working in the running and outdoor industries, and along those lines, what brands in those spaces can do better when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Camila and I also talk about inclusiveness in running and how we as runners can address tough issues like diversity and racism in our communities. There's a lot more to this conversation. I learned a ton from Camila. This was her first podcast, by the way, and I really appreciate her sharing her story and perspectives with me and in turn with all of you. All right, let's jump right into it with Camila Jornet. Camila Jornet, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Mario. I know this is your first podcast, first real interview of this type, which is a huge honor for me because you're someone who I've been paying attention to and whose work I've followed for the last couple of years. And I think it'll be great for me to learn more about you and the path that you followed, not only as a person, but in running and in the running and outdoor industries and to be able to share that here with my listeners. Great. Yeah, I'm really excited to share a bit and just talk all things running. Let's start with a little self-introduction. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Oh, big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess something I've realized about myself is at my core, I'm a runner. I've been running 
I guess you could say, since I was 13 under that official runner umbrella. Um, but I, I've always loved to run. I was the kid growing up where my friends stopped playing tag with me because I was not fun to play with when I was it. Um, and I just, I always loved running. I was running everywhere. My mom says I've ran in my sleep even as a child. Um, but officially, I guess I started running when I was 12, I want to say. My middle school on the East Coast had a track team. Um, if you could see me, I just did air quotes because it was a team of kids who ran in, they must have been old football jerseys. And we practiced our handoffs in the hallway because it was snowing outside. We didn't have a track. And my mom often reminds me that my first track race was the 100 meter dash, which I spent chit chatting with a friend I had bumped into. Um, and <laughs> through the whole race? <laughs> through the entire race. <laughs> and so I, sure, I liked running, but I wasn't super competitive in it. I moved back to California from Maryland. I was born and raised in California until I was eight. Um, moved to Maryland for six years and moved back right before high school. Um, and I moved to South Orange County and joined the track team in eighth grade. I did the eight by 100 meter relay. I was the sixth leg because I didn't want too much pressure, but I definitely still wanted to impact the team. And I did the 100 meter hurdles, uh, which I got second to last in. And I think I broke nine minutes in the mile in PE that year. That's a pretty good range. Uh, so I was kind of all over the place, uh, but I moved in March of eighth grade. So I had made one friend, really. And we were sent home with these pink forms to check off what sports we wanted to do in high school. So I had checked off track. My mom had signed it. I'm sitting in class and my friend taps me on the shoulder and she's like, check the box for cross country. And I was like, what's cross country? <laughs> And she's like, well, it's the same thing as track. It's just a little bit longer. And if you can run cross country, like imagine how fast you're going to be in the 100 come track season. And at 14, that seems like enough reason for me. So I checked the box. A month or so later, a big packet arrived in the mail with all the forms and the practice schedule. And I... I'd never done an organized sport, really. I did a couple years of soccer, but um, my mom put me in the arts and sewing class and took me to museums and things like that. So she was like, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> like, it seems like a lot. And I was like, yep, my only friend's doing it. I'm doing it. Um, and I guess long story short, I joined the team. I didn't try very hard. I think I maybe broke 21 in the three mile my freshman year, but I was walking on runs. My friends and I would stop at Carl's Jr. and buy French fries and like walk up the hill. <laughs> like did not take running seriously at all. I got to track. I told my coach I was a hundred meter runner, despite having just completed an entire cross country season. And he said, no, you're not. I'll let you run 100 just to get it out of your system but you're definitely a distance runner. <laughs> and that year, I, 
I easily broke six in the mile. So I PR'd by over three minutes and was running in the 540s for the mile that freshman year. And so the next season, I was told I could not run with my friends anymore. And I cried and I was very upset. But it really, um, my coach essentially was like, you're not running with these troublemakers anymore. I'm pretty sure that might have actually been what he said. Um, You're going to train with this sub varsity kind of group. My high school is really competitive. My sophomore year, they were third in the state of California. Um, I ran Tribuco Hills High School and we were high mileage. We were super serious, but we had a lot of fun. And I think once I realized that running was something that allowed me to kind of, I guess, have a sense of freedom, a sense of accomplishment, um, I really poured everything into it. And I fought really hard. I was eighth or ninth runner my whole sophomore year, which was super frustrating. Um, I came back junior year and was like, I'm going to score. I'm going to be on varsity. And by senior year, I was excited to be a captain, consistent top runner on the team. And at that point, I was kind of able to set my goals for myself a bit more. It's interesting to hear you describe that initial interaction with your coach because you wanted to run the 100 meters. He's like, no, 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 you're going to be a distant (laughs) runner. Because when I first joined the track team, I told the coach that I wanted to be a 300 hurdler and I would run up to the 800 meters, but (laughs) nothing beyond that. And for the first week of practice, the coach had everyone run these like one mile loops around the high school. Mm-hmm. And you ran between like two and four of them. And I had no previous running background, but I was really competitive. And I was like, well, I'm going to run the most loops and I'm going to run near the front even. And I did end up walking like the third or fourth lap. Mm-hmm. And the first track meet, coach was like, all right, Fraioli, you're running the two mile. And I was like, what? No, that, that's got to be a mistake. I can't run two miles. I'm a 300 meter hurdler. And he's like, no, 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 you did four of those loops the other day and you ran near the front. You're, you're a distance <laughs> runner. Um, and it, it's funny to hear you describe a very similar experience because we ended up doing this to ourselves. Yeah, definitely. It's, I, I laugh when I think about it because I'm honestly so thankful that he did tell me that I was not going to do the hundred because I feel like a lot of coaches might have said, okay, like, that's cool. You can do what you want and track. My track team had hundreds of kids on it, literally. Um, so it, it did feel kind of special as hard as it was that I was kind of singled out a little bit there and encouraged to push myself. When did you first realize that cross country was nothing like track? Oh, it must have been the first day. The first day of cross country practice. And I realized this was the first day of every summer practice, Um, we would do a two mile time trial Mm -hmm. and I'd never run longer than the mile. Um, So I started walking very quickly and I don't know what my time was, but I must've been one of the last people to finish the two mile time trial down the road. That was pretty much downhill. Um, But I love the people. Cross country is kind of this funny group of 
I, I mean, I think most of us know we're kind of misfits. <laughs> like it kind of draws the kids that couldn't mm. do any other sports or it draws the kids that want a sport to look good for college or it draws the kids that maybe their parents run. And we're all kind of coming from different backgrounds, but it's great the camaraderie you get. Like even though my friends and I were goofing off and the two mile time trial ended at a donut shop. So we'd pack $2 in our shorts and make sure we could buy a donut when we got there. Like we bonded over that. And that was something I quickly realized was that running could be um, an activity I got to do with my friends that was just fun. It was fun to be outside and run together. Was that the first time you had ever felt that way? I think it it was probably the time I felt like I had the widest network <laughs> because mm-hmm. I considered myself a pretty shy kid. I always had a couple close friends, but I, I'd never been on a team. All of my activities were pretty solo. I'm an only child. I don't have siblings. All of my best friends, strangely, are also only children. <laughs> so it was kind of this limited network. And then you show up. And I'm on this cross-country kid with 100 kids, so they're also all a little weird. But we got to do things together every single day, and that was pretty special. So, Were your parents athletes at all themselves? No, not at all. I mean, my parents were fit. I don't know that we ever went on like a family hike or run. They taught me how to ride a bike. Um, they made sure I spent a lot of time outside. My mom would lock me outside in the summer and like only open the door to give me some snacks and something to drink and say like, be outside. But they were honestly really shocked by how competitive I was once I start, started to get into running. Um, because my mom was told in high school when she tried to do tennis for a season, not to come back the next year. <laughs> And she like never tried a sport again, really. And my dad had a really big growth spurt and was just an awkward, lanky kid that couldn't really figure out how to use his body in any sport. And so I was kind of the sole athlete um, in my parents' eyes anyway. So it was, it was interesting for that reason too. Did that competitiveness that you just described only come out in running or looking back, could you see it uh, manifesting itself in other areas of your life? I'd say I'm, I'm definitely most competitive when it comes to running. And I think perhaps running made me more competitive in other areas of my life. Um, I kind of challenged myself in school. I took honors and AP and that sort of thing, but I, I didn't really care I I was never that perfectionist. Um, But with running, I was. With running, there was no way I was going to miss a practice. There was no way I wasn't going to have my last repeat be my best. Um, I really like something in me turned on where I wasn't just quiet and shy. I was like, she did not just elbow me. (laughs) Like, we're racing. Like, this is when it comes out. Um, so that was really fun. When you really started getting into the sport in high school, what happened to some of your other interests? Were you able to balance those things out or were you pretty much all in on running at that point? I was 
all in. And I think part of that came from my program. We were running high mileage. We cheered when we were told we only had eight miles that day. It was like a short run. We did half marathon Mondays, we called them during the summer. We swam on Sundays. Like it was all in all running. Um, but I, I liked it that way. I still, I still had fun. I still had a boyfriend who of course also ran on the team. Like my network was running. Um, but yeah, I guess a lot of the hobbies and arts and crafts and things I had previously, um, occupied my time with kind of fell to the wayside a bit. At what point did you know you wanted to continue running competitively after high school? I think that happened my senior year. I mean, I had seen kids that continued to run in college. Um, But by senior year, I remember the first race of the season was the Seaside Invitational in Ventura, which ironically I live two miles from now. Um, So it kind of came full circle because it was like four hours away when I was in high school. But I was first for our team there. And I remember one of my coaches pulling me aside and I had broken 18, I think, in the three mile. And she was like, that was great. Like, you're going to break 1730 easily in the three mile. And I thought, 1730? Like, you've got to be kidding. And a week or two later, I went to Woodbridge and ran 1726. And it was like under the lights and the sweepstakes race. And it was kind of like I felt all the hard work was paying off. Um, And I went into track season kind of with some colleges in mind of where I wanted to run. And I had some times in mind. I told my coach, like, I want to get the school record in the 800. And like, that's that. This year, I'm specializing in the 800. And long story short, I put everything into it. And I did get the school record. And it was the best feeling. And it was awesome. And I wanted to continue that passion and that fire at the collegiate level. You ended up going to University of California at San Diego and ran there. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe they were Division Two at the time. They still might be. I know they were thinking about mm-hmm. transitioning or trying to transition to Division One at some point. How was that transition for you, especially coming from a very serious high-level high school program? Honestly, it was really weird. (laughs) Um, I chose UC San Diego. Um, My mom and her sisters had gone to Davis. My grandpa worked at Berkeley. It was kind of like we're a UC family kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew they were Division II. I felt like I could make an impact there. And it was so drastically different than high school, not just because of everything that comes with running in college, but it, I came from a team that wanted to be like at the top to a school that viewed athletics more as like you're a student first and an athlete second, which of course, that's why you're in college. But it, there was something missing. There was a, it seemed like there was a, I guess my priorities were still different at that time. For me, running had come before school for years and it didn't mean my grades suffered, but I was a runner. 
And all of a sudden, I was at a program full of engineers and pre-med students and people whose classes seemed to really like have to take precedence over running. Um, And yeah, I kind of, I struggled a little bit with that for sure. How were you thinking about things outside of running during that period of your life? Had you settled on a field of study early on? Did you have some idea what you wanted to do when you graduated from college? Yeah, I ironically, I picked UC San Diego and there was really only one major in the entire university that I was interested in. And so I did know at least what I wanted to study. I ended up studying communication. Um, and that often gets set up as kind of like an athlete's major for whatever reason I found. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the communication program at UCSD was really special because it actually focused on the theoretical side of communication and how it affects human relationships and culture and how that plays out in the different means of communication. So rather than learning about journalism, I was learning about the theories and the reasonings and the processes behind why we communicate. And that was super fascinating to me. What was the attraction to it? I think I, I've just always been a people watcher. Um, it drives my friends crazy. I don't know if it's because I'm an only child or what, but I love observing people trying to understand how they think, how they enter spaces, what their interactions look like. And so a major that kind of allowed me to take a wide range of classes um, from communication theories to film to specific classes on film. I took a class on films in Southern California and how they shaped the way that Southern California was viewed during those early years. It was just something where I got to write a lot. I got to have a lot of interesting conversations and I didn't get uh, pigeonholed into one area. Um, So I thought that was really neat. Did you have any idea at the time how you wanted to channel that into a career? No, not really. I mean, I don't think a lot of college kids do. Um, I graduated a year early on top of that. So I was 21 when I graduated college and I kind of knew marketing existed. I had done an internship at the Active Network and I was overseeing all their social media postings across channels and Instagram was new. And I kind of thought that was an interesting path. So I graduated and kind of tried to figure it out from there how I could get back to something that allowed me to honestly kind of observe these different channels from uh, afar. I loved reading comments and seeing what people were posting and how people were reacting to things. So that was something that always kind of interested me. How did your relationship with running evolve while you were in college? It was, it was really hard. Um, I look back on college running and a part of me wishes I had tried harder. Um, another part of me says, don't be too hard on yourself. I didn't realize until my sophomore year that I was severely anemic. Um, no one could really 
tell me why I was struggling to run times um, that came easily in high school. I went from running 213 in high school to barely being able to break 230. And that was really frustrating. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like I kind of burned out. <laughs> like I got to college and I was super excited. And then all of a sudden it was super hard. And then the next thing I knew, I was telling myself, well, if you take 20 units a quarter, you can graduate this year. And running was fun, but like, you're not going to run forever. So <laughs> I kind of just left it at that. As you were finishing up your time at UCSD, you mentioned how you ended up graduating a year early. You knew that this field called marketing existed. Sounds like you were a little fried on the running front. How are you thinking about your relationship with running after you graduated? Did you think it would still be something that you did for fun or when the mood struck right? Did you still have any competitive desires that you hope to go after? I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, so when I stopped running, I actually quit the team three times before I stopped running. Uh, first, I quit and told my cross-country coach I was only going to do track and I wanted to run middle distance. Um, all this happened in, in the summer before we even went back to school. Then I told the middle distance coach I quit and I actually wasn't going to do middle distance. Then the head track coach came and sat me down and said, what's going on? What are you doing? And she convinced me to come back to track. And then, I don't know, a week later, I quit again. And I didn't run for three years. Like, not as in I didn't run competitively or I didn't run a lot. I didn't run at all. I just needed not to. But... If someone asked me what I enjoyed doing, I still said running. <laughs> like I talked to my coworkers about running all the time. I hadn't run a step in years. Um, so I guess that was kind of eye-opening to me that maybe I wasn't done with running, but I wasn't ready to start running again either. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based brand led by a group of runners who are committed to making classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel. Their focus is real-world athletes, so the kind of runners who sneak a workout into their commute or plan vacations around races. Sound familiar? Does to me. Tracksmith designs all their products for the needs of serious amateurs, so they only use the best materials, from sweat-wicking, stink-free merino wool to a unique Italian nylon knit for their performance shorts. And all their garments feature thoughtful details that let you focus on your workout. As we head into summer, I love, love, love training in the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights. It's one of my favorite combinations, especially when I want to run fast. Both pieces are lightweight and super breathable, which helps me stay cool and allows me to move freely when the temperature starts rising. To welcome listeners to the podcast, Tracksmith is offering $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. That will save you $15 off your first Tracksmith purchase of $75 or more. My thanks to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When did you take that 
next first step after three years away from it? So I had moved to a suburban town of Thousand Oaks, um, and I had a job that ended at 2 p.m. And then I picked up some hours in the evenings um, working in marketing for a small local business. And I thought, this is weird. I have this gap in the middle of my day. Um, my partner's not home yet. What am I going to do? What am I good at? My mom had encouraged me to look into some sort of volunteer community-based work. Um, so I reached out to the high school cross-country team. And I said, hey, I don't know if you need anyone to help coach, but if you do, I, I run, I ran here, I live close, you're the closest high school to me um, if you're interested. And so I sat down with the coach there and we had a great conversation and he said, sure, let's do this. Like, we'd love to have someone help assist our boys and girls cross country and track programs. So I said, great. And I got home and I was like, this is awesome. I haven't run in three years. <laughs> and so I literally started with five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, 15. I'll never forget when I went and didn't do an out and back, but committed to the full three mile loop <laughs> instead. And I was like, there's no turning back now because either way you're doing three miles. <laughs> and Coaching with the, the kids there really reminded me of how much I loved running in high school. And I was so enamored by their passion, their goofiness, their nonchalantness, their attitudes. It was just great. It was the highlight of my day. Um, and that kind of led me to a point where I said, well, if I'm telling them that they need to do this, then... I need to challenge myself to do this too so that I can feel how it feels to have one rep left or have 10 reps left or whatever I was asking of them. It didn't seem fair that I, I wasn't committing myself to that. It's almost as if you were recommitting yourself to a lifestyle that you had left behind. Exactly. Very much so. So let's fast forward a little bit from there because you've worked in the running and outdoor industries. You're still in Southern California. Did you know that you wanted to go in that direction, work in marketing for brands that were in those spaces? I honestly, outside of Nike, growing up in high school and being like, oh yeah, Nike does some cool marketing things. I never really thought about the other brands. I knew they existed. I knew when you went to the running shoe store, there were lots of brands to choose from. I knew there was lots of gear out there. Um, but I kind of fell into the industry in a strange way. Um, I had started to talk with some of the women over at Wazelle. Wazelle kind of looped me back into that side of things and a switch in my brain flipped of oh yeah, like you can take your job and you can do it somewhere that is all about what you love doing. And so that's when I really started to insert myself into those spaces more so. Putting your communications hat on, what were you noticing at that time about how these different brands in running and outdoor 
or communicating with their customers and their fans? I noticed there were kind of two sides. There was always the the sales goals side and how they were working to broaden their reach, reach a new audience, how they were stacking up against their competitors. And then there was the marketing side, which I tended to fall under, that was searching for, in a way, it sometimes feels like ways to feel authentic or to appear authentic in new spaces. Because from a business perspective, you're always trying to reach a new audience because you want their dollars, you want their support, you may want to help influence those spaces. But at the end of the day, you're a business. And in order to accomplish your goals, you need to make more money. So the marketing side of things was very much tailored to how can we market ourselves in these spaces to grow our brand? And that was something I guess I I hadn't really thought about until I was behind the desk working on those sorts of things. And when you found yourself in that position, what were some of the misses that brands were making or holes that you identified? I'm not speaking about any brand in particular, but just throughout these industries. Yeah, I would say a big hole just seemed to be that you could put a number on something to make it right. And by that, I mean, you can't always look at a photo and go like, yeah, that's our brand, or those are runners, or that's a diverse group of runners. It's, you, you can't always like pinpoint what makes something feel authentic in a space. But at the same time, to me, it felt very out of place to put percentages behind like, okay, well, we need two people that fit here. We need one person that fits here. And then we can kind of keep doing what we're doing here. And then it'll all blend and it'll all work together. And so I was interested to see who was sitting at these tables making these decisions about what was authentic for spaces where they had never been before. That was something that I was always kind of constantly um, trying to better understand. If I can interject here, and listeners will understand why this is important here in a second. One thing we haven't talked about in this conversation is that you are a Black woman who is a distance runner and is working in the running and outdoor spaces. Looking around when you were in these environments, what did you see from that standpoint? I mean, I did not see a lot of Black women. (laughs) I did not see a lot of Black people, um, not always a lot of brown people or other people of color in those spaces. Um, Despite the images that are put forward by these brands, those aren't always the people sitting behind the brands making the decisions. And there definitely are some that do have a a person or two, maybe, (laughs) um, that can represent a different viewpoint. But it, it's a very white field. And that's something I realized just in being an athlete. Like I, I was pretty much always the, the black girl that did distance or the black girl on the cross country team. 
Um, and as much as people can try to be um, what they, I hopefully, what they used to think was acceptable and being colorblind, it's still very apparent um, when you get into some of these discussions. Let's rewind to what we were talking about earlier when you first got into running. When you joined that track team in middle school, air quotes, track team <laughs> in middle school, did you notice that you were one of the only black people in that environment? Well, when I started running in middle school, it mm-hmm. was a more diverse group. And so in that sense, I was at a school that was pretty diverse. When I moved to Southern Orange County, I was at a school that was not very diverse. And it was very clear to me that there were not a lot of Black distance runners. Like that was apparent. We did actually have a Black young woman who was a captain of our team, which was super exciting to me. I'm sure other people might not have thought much of it, but that was great (laughs) because she was the only other Black woman I saw out there. Um, But yeah, it's it's very apparent in the kind of microaggressions you start to feel in those spaces. Looking back, when was the first time that you felt some of those microaggressions? <sighs> microaggressions are hard because they're they're often so subtle. And I think one of the hardest things about being one of you or in often cases, the only black faces, your your brain automatically wants to say, is it because I'm black that someone did that? Because you grow up hearing from your your family and those that are black around you that those moments will come. It's just always kind of an inevitable part of being black. So you don't want to assume that you're white friend feels like she can run her fingers through your hair without asking just because you're black, because you know, that's not what she meant. (laughs) She didn't mean to make you feel uncomfortable, but I felt uncomfortable. And when you're young, you don't, you don't always know how to speak up and you really kind of tiptoe around people's feelings. So for me, there's just been, it was a series of little incidents. Not everything was as outright as the car driving by yelling, run, inward, run, while I'm running with all of my teammates down the street and no one says anything and we just kind of keep going as if it didn't happen. Like that's an outright <laughs> aggression that I'll never forget. But for all the little things, it kind of just becomes part of your day to day. And you, you know, it doesn't feel right when your friends tell you, well, you're black on the outside, but you're white on the inside. (laughs) Like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, but you don't always know how to handle those um, sorts of situations. When you were growing up, did your parents ever have conversations with you where they told you to watch out for yourself or to behave in a certain way because you were black? Of course. I mean, 
I don't know when they started because it feels like they always existed. Mm-hmm. And maybe they weren't always conversations of you can't do this because you're black. But I think especially my mother was very open with me about how racism is not a thing of the past and how things, while they're getting better, are still not great. So I grew up hearing her stories of being a Girl Scout and not being allowed to go swimming with her troop. I heard how when she was my age in first or second grade, the teacher sent the only two black students in the class outside and told all the white students, Kim, my mother, is a good Negro. The other girl, Trudy, is a bad Negro. And those stories stay with you. (laughs) Like there's not moments where I haven't thought myself, how do people view me? Am I really like, what does it mean when someone says that I act white? My mom told me that people would view me in certain ways because of how I act and that in certain situations, my color will play a part in how I'm received. But is it a good thing if people say I act white? Is it a bad thing? What, like, how do you, how do you process those things when you have to process them your entire life? It's just, it's a lot to think about. You recently wrote a piece for Tracksmith that I linked to in my newsletter called Your Black Teammate. And you just mentioned when you were younger, there would be a car, you know, car would drive by and you're with your teammates and they would single you out and call you the N-word. At the end of that piece, you wrote, while I share these examples of existing in spaces where I run, I try to appear as if I belong everywhere I go every single day. And that line in particular stuck out to me. And I'm curious, like, when did you first become conscious of that? It must have been when I was, I don't know, being put in honors classes at a young age. It's like, oh, well, she's so articulate. And articulate as a word carries a lot of weight for Black people, which a lot of people might not know. But it basically is almost a way of saying you don't expect that I could be articulate. So you're feeling a need to point it out. And so, yeah, it's kind of just an on, it's an ongoing, everlasting way of going through life. It's being followed around the store when you're six years old because the shop owner thinks you're going to steal something. And she does it every single time you're there. Like it's being looked at in a strange way where you wonder, is it because I don't fit in here? It's your mom feeling the need to tell you these stories repeatedly. It's the fact that none of your friends have dolls that look like you. Like there's, there's so, so many things. It, and it's absolutely overwhelming, but it's also just always on. So, well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm glad we're having this conversation right now. Looking back at your life, let's say from junior high on, were you having any of these types of conversations 
with your friends? Was it just too awkward? Was it just too difficult to approach? I'd love to try and understand that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I ever felt comfortable enough to have these conversations with my friends. I think I didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Despite the fact that I I felt uncomfortable, I just wanted to believe that they meant well and that their hearts were in the right place because they were my friends. So even in college, I can think back to repeated instances of being told that I wasn't really black or that, you know, I didn't really act black. (laughs) And I kind of just let them go. I think there was only one incident where I had a teammate who was Asian say that she was concerned that she was getting too dark. And I did call her out and say, like, what's wrong with being dark? And it was really awkward. (laughs) Like, it was just a locker room full of silence. And she didn't know what to say. And no one really said anything. And then I must have gone back to, you know, changing or whatever. But that experience doesn't encourage you to speak up. Like, that was awkward for me. And I'm the one whose feelings are hurt by what you said. So I don't really think until I really became an adult into my 20s that I realized how many times I had let things just slip away and not have those conversations. Well, and you think about the number of other people in similar shoes to you who felt the same exact way. And you can see why this has continued to be a problem for generations. Exactly. Another thing you wrote in the piece for Tracksmith was about your experience at UCSD. And You said at one point they hung photos of you around campus and you were possibly the only black woman in a fall sport. What is it like to see that when you see your image, you know, up all over campus for people to see and knowing that I'm the only black woman on this team, I might be the only black woman who's playing a fall sport? Yeah, it's... It's hard because a part of you wants to be excited. Like we've all toured college campuses and seen the people on the banner or in the stadiums and thought like, wow, how cool. But for me, I was coming off of a terrible season. (laughs) Like somehow I had squeezed in and barely scored points at conference, but in my head I had failed. And I come back from the short summer break to start summer training And without my knowledge, my image had been plastered in the bookstore on huge banners and on little flags. And it was, it was strange. I knew that I must have signed something at some point that said, yes, Mm -hmm. you can use my image. That part was fine. I also knew that I wasn't the best runner on our team. I knew that there were others that would be more fit to be a, face of the women's cross-country team. I also was very aware that UC San Diego at that time was less than 2% Black. 
like it was a joke. Literally, me and my teammates would joke about the fact that you could count on your fingers how many Black people you might see walking to class. There were so few of us. So the fact that me, as one of the few, was now being, in a way, it felt very much like a a way to tokenize me even more to have my image around campus and to see my junior year that I'd also been added to a little poster in round table pizza. And I joked with my friends. I was like, I don't even run here anymore. <laughs> like I ran here for two years and I'm on this little photo in the pizza place. Why? It just, it felt very obvious um, that they were searching for a way to embrace diversity. Um, but they didn't necessarily think about how that might make someone feel. Yeah, it feels really disingenuous. It's like being able to show, hey, look at this, we've got a black woman who runs on our cross-country team, but behind the scenes, there's nothing happening to really promote diversity and inclusion at the school or in the sports program. And that's not to just call out UCSD specifically, because I know this sort of thing happens at many other places as well. Exactly. And to tie this into what you do now or the industries that you work in now, is that something that you see happening amongst brands where they will have an advertising campaign that looks diverse to someone's eye, but when you really peel back the layers and understand what they do as a company and who they're about, it's just really, you know, they're just showing that on the surface. Yeah, I think sadly that is the case in a lot of industries. And I feel like once you're in the outdoor industry, you're connected with a lot of other people in the outdoor industry. So while I can't speak for all brands, I can speak for what I hear and what I see. And I'm not exactly sure when DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion started getting put on PowerPoint slides (laughs) and started being something that all the brands were focused on. Um, But it very much felt that the first way to be inclusive was just to use people's images, which for me was like full circle back to college. Like, here Mm -hmm. we go again. Sure, you paid someone in gear to pose for your photo shoot, but was the photographer a person of color? Was the editor? Is your creative director? Is there anyone on marketing? Is there anyone in your company that actually looks like this person? And it's interesting because you see on the product side, all of these brands putting so much thought and testing and various meetings throughout the season, working 18 months in advance oftentimes to make sure that their product has been run through every single feedback mechanism that exists. But then you see on the diversity side, oftentimes there's a few voices that might speak up and say, well, this doesn't look quite diverse enough. Can we do something about that. And then they go and they find someone on Instagram and they scroll and they go, oh, well, this person is 
more diverse, throw them in there. But I feel like just within maybe the last few years, maybe the last couple years, we actually started to see some of the stories that these people had and they became less of a image and more Mm -hmm. of a like, who is this and why are we talking about them? Um, But yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to see. Yeah, and that's an important first step is to share the stories behind the image. But going a little bit deeper than that, within the structure of the companies themselves, as you described earlier, oftentimes you will be the only black person in the room and almost certainly the only black woman in the room. How do we shift that paradigm? How do we make it more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, Why aren't there more people who look like me in this industry showing up to group runs? <laughs> like anything along those lines. And I think as much as everyone can be focused on moving forward, you can't forget where we were. And it's really uncomfortable to put yourself in a position where you know you'll be the only. And you can't just expect that because you post a job and you're open to diverse clients, that someone is going to then, despite scrolling your Instagram or your website and seeing no one that looks like them, think, well, this is something I'm going to go for. And even thinking about some of these companies where they're based, what, what does the neighborhood where your company is look like? Are they not only going to be the only black person at work, but the only black person at happy hour and the only black person on a run and the only black person grabbing a coffee? Like that is hard. I'm often the only black face I see in person all day where I live. Like I don't see anyone that looks like me all day for multiple days. And that's something that you really can't understand unless you start talking to someone who's been in those positions. So it's not going to be easy to all of a sudden flip a switch and have a diverse inside to match the diversity that you're trying to show on the outside. There's a lot of work that needs to be done by those in this industry. Reach out to other people. Go out of your way. Because it's, it's kind of, in some cases, past the point of people feeling comfortable enough to just show up. Hey, we've got one more sponsor to thank for this episode. It's my friends at Whoop. I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Here's what's great about Whoop from my experience. Every day when you wake up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal that you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. 
The Whoop app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name when you check out. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, at checkout and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Is that something that you are now just as passionate about in addition to your day-to-day duties? I would say it is. And I would also say that it's exhausting Mm -hmm. (laughs) because what ends up happening is, of course, I'm passionate about helping people feel included and making sure that voices are heard. As I mentioned, I'm very much a people watcher. I like to see like when the gears start clicking, what makes people put themselves in someone else's shoes, how their thought process works. But I also cannot be the sole voice inside a company on top of a job that I already have. (laughs) And that's where it becomes exhausting. And that's where really it takes allies to hear these messages and share them within their circles. Because I recently did a quick LinkedIn search of diversity, equity, and inclusion officers or people that oversee that in various industries. And every single one I clicked, I mean, I clicked, I don't know, 10, 15, they were all Black women. They were all Black women who were well-educated, who had a career in finance, in marketing, in communication, in HR, in something else. And then all of a sudden, something had to switch. And now they're in positions where they basically have to be the person holding the flag and puts up the red flag and goes, nope, like, not that. Make sure you do it this way. And as much as that's something I'm passionate about, it must also be exhausting. Mm To have that be how you're viewed as the person that always has to almost be the negative Nancy who comes in and says, no, you did it wrong again. So I hope that as much as I can be passionate about this, that others can be passionate about this and that it's something that we can work on as a collective group instead of placing this additional burden on the people of color that already reside in these organizations. Yeah, I think that's super important. And what we're just seeing outside of the running and outdoor industries right now with people coming together for a common cause, there's a lot of power in that. Um, And if we can have more of that within the industry itself and not just naming people to these positions to essentially, you know, police it or to be the bad guy, we're all going to be better off. The industries will be better off and we can actually make some progress in these areas. Definitely. To me, what you were describing earlier sounds like you're constantly walking this line of being comfortable in a situation and being uncomfortable in a situation. 
you said when you joined the cross-country and track teams when you were a youth, like you had found your people, the misfits, like there was just, you know, a, a connection there. And it's something that you've stuck with through your entire adult life. And those still are your people, but you are very much in the minority when you're, when you're in those groups. And, you know, these microaggressions will happen. People will say things that they don't even realize can be, you know, hurtful. How do you straddle that line between being comfortable in a situation with people who are your friends and you get along with really well, but also don't really understand their privilege or how their words are received or what their actions might be saying? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something where sometimes you let things go. But what I've realized for myself personally, one, I feel like this current climate has really allowed me to find my voice. Um, because all of a sudden I looked up and I thought, wow, I can't speak for my friends, but I am almost positive that for most of them, I'm their closest black friend. And that in a way was like a aha moment, but also a how sad moment. And so I have, as ridiculous as it sounds, despite the fact that I am exhausted and grieving and heartbroken by the situation that we're faced with right now, I find myself feeling as though my words can have a larger impact because they hit harder for those who know me. And I think that's something that I've realized, but it's also something that's true for everyone. Like everyone's voice is louder within their network. And for me, that means sharing openly. And that means when people reach out that I am honest about my encounters. That means that I do pull my coworker aside if they say something that hurts my feelings. And even though it's uncomfortable for me now, I hope that it won't be uncomfortable forever. And I hope that it won't happen forever. But as much as the, the burden should not fall on me, I am way more knowledgeable on racism and microaggressions and what it's like to be black in America than most of my network. So it's a strange balance of feeling like this isn't an obligation, but also where is my peace in this fight? Like, what can I do um, to spread this message so that this doesn't last for another 400 years? What have some of the conversations been like with some of your longest standing white friends or colleagues that you formerly worked with or currently work with once you started being a little bit more open and sharing your stories and your experiences on a wider platform? Yeah, I mean, they've definitely ranged. I would say one of the people I've spoken with this the most with is my best friend of 25 years. So we've known each other since we were toddlers. Um, we used to say we were twins, despite the fact that she's blonde and blue eyed and I clearly am not. <laughs> um, 
And there were definitely points where she considered herself colorblind, that she didn't see color, that she did not see me as her black friend. And we discussed this openly, so I don't think that she'll be upset that I'm sharing it. But she came to realize that by not acknowledging me as a black woman, and she realized this long before I had to write something, but she realized that by not acknowledging me as a black woman, you're really only taking pieces of who I am. Because while me being black might not affect our relationship, it does affect my life. And so I think that's something that my friends who have considered themselves non-racist, that of course mm -hmm. would never think anything of me, or quotes, being black or being black in America or what that means, of them realizing that being non-racist is not enough. <laughs> that it takes action. It takes anti-racist actions and education to actually support your friends the same way you would with anything. If you find out your friend has been diagnosed with an illness, before you can comfort them, you might do a quick Google search on your own to find out what is this? What does it look like? What do they need from me? And that should be the reaction in general, to anything that your friend is going through, let alone something they go through every day of their lives. I appreciate you sharing that. And speaking as a white man, I think that is so, so important. What I'm realizing right now is that this work is going to be ongoing, probably for as long as I'm alive. And not just for myself personally, but for the friends that you just described, teammates that you've had, like just other white people in general who lack the understanding of what it is to be a black person in America today. Definitely. You mentioned that earlier, you used that, that line, being black in America. What does that mean to you? Oh. Being... Black in America is beautiful. It is strength. It is pride. It is community. But it's also fear. It's complicated because I am one of many African American women who cannot go back and trace my lineage to where my family came from. As far as I can see, my family was brought here against their will as slaves. And that alone, like me saying that statement alone has made some of my friends uncomfortable, but that's my truth. And being black in America means that you are not seen as the same simply because of something that you had no control over. It's never something you can turn off. It's not a profession that you chose. It's not a decision that was ever offered to you. It's simply who you are. And it's oftentimes devastating. It's oftentimes 
hurtful. It's oftentimes isolating. But for me, I would never change it. <laughs> I love being Black. I love the, the culture, the joy, the, the pride in how strong we are, even when we don't need to be. And I hope that we are past the point where people just want to ignore race and have everything be rainbows because it's important to understand where people come from and how they got to where they are. And that's something I'm really proud of. I thank you for sharing that. And one thing that has become really apparent in the past couple of weeks or more apparent in the past couple of weeks to me is just how much more black people understand their history than certainly white people do and why this has been a problem for the past 400 years and why even though times have changed a lot of things have not changed the systems that were put in place so long ago are the same reasons why things are the way that they are today and i think if more white folks can understand that we'll never be able to really empathize but we'll be able to better understand why when we see news like we've seen in the last few weeks with Ahmed Arbery and George Floyd, there's so much anger and there's so much emotion and there is this huge reaction. And I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's just so, so important for the rest of us to understand where black people are coming from as well. Definitely. I mean, even the fact that we're simply saying Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. like, just think about that statement at, in terms of what it means. We're just saying they matter. There's so much more to being a Black person than simply mattering, but that's where we're starting. And that's what some people can't even understand. Mm -hmm. that we're literally just saying, I matter, and that that is a statement of strength, speaks volumes for where our country is at right now. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, and that, to your point, is the first thing that really needs to change. Because if we can make a major shift as far as that's concerned, we can continue to build upon it from here on out and make the more important changes that absolutely need to happen so that not just yourself, but other black people moving forward don't have to experience the things that you've experienced throughout your entire life. I'd love to shift gears toward running specifically at this moment. A lot of people talk about how running is one of the most inclusive sports. It has a low barrier to entry. I'd love to dig into that with you a little bit. Is running really inclusive? I think running is pretty inclusive. I think that if you really get into the nitty gritty, you can touch on the fact that people are pushed or pulled in certain directions when it comes to the different areas of running that you can partake in. So you could say that distance running, especially at the high school or college level, is primarily 
not a super diverse sport. But then you can look at the Olympics and go, well, there's a decent amount of diversity there when you look at it from a, a world scale. Um, but in terms of the entry to running, all you need are shoes, some workout clothes, and that's about it. So for that reason, I would say that the, the opportunity to run is there. I'd say one thing that I've noticed is that despite the fact that running is a sport that can be entered by many, many people don't consider themselves runners, even though they run. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a point of interest for me personally. Like why, if you run at your lunch break or if you run after work, or before you start your other workout, why would you not consider yourself to be a runner? And I think that is a piece that the running industry perhaps needs to think about. Like, why is it that people don't feel comfortable associating themselves with the term runner when that is what they do? And yeah, it's, it's a great yeah. question. It's one that I've been thinking about for the last several years. When I worked in run specialty, you'd have people come in the store and they would say, I'm not really a runner. I just run 5Ks. It's like, well, you just told me that you run 5Ks. Therefore, you are a runner. No, no, not really. I don't do marathons or anything like that. Or I remember people telling me they would run early in the morning so that they wouldn't be seen by their neighbors. They were almost ashamed of the fact that you know they were out there. And I think it's, yeah, trying to break down those barriers so that more people can include that as part of their identity. Definitely. How do we as runners and leaders in our respective communities, both where we live and online, better address racism in the sport? It's a big question. I think if we knew the answer to that, that would be awesome. From my perspective, I'm probably biased, but I think runners are a pretty smart group of people. Um, I think we take part in a sport where we have a lot of time to think. So I challenge all of us to think on this. Because in terms of increasing diversity in running, you have to make room for diversity, but you also have to seek it. And I'm not always sure of when that shift happens where people feel comfortable walking into a space. But I think that there's something to be said about adapting to the pace, sometimes literally, of people who are not seen in your space. Mm -hmm. I think that something I realized when I was coaching high schoolers. And then when I tried to start running with my coworkers, it was very apparent that people knew that I was faster. So they felt as if they couldn't run with me. And it took me proving to them that I was going to run with them no matter what, no matter what pace they went, no matter if they stopped and walked, or needed a sip of water, or only wanted to do a small loop. I think 
we need to learn to adapt and that our run is not always the most important part of our run. And if you want diversity to exist in this space, diversity of thought, diversity of skin color, diversity of background, diversity of ability, you have to be open to sitting in that, whatever it means. So inclusion is probably more important than your intervals. Like maybe you had a big workout plan today and maybe it can wait because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think as a collective group, there's a lot of power in just slowing down. Thank you for that. I like that line, inclusion is more important than your intervals. And something I've been thinking about personally over the last few weeks, given my role in the running community here where I live in the Bay Area, but also through this platform and what I'm doing with my newsletter is how do we make it more inclusive? What first steps can we take? I know this isn't something that's all going to change at once, but I do believe if more of us can adopt that mindset, back to what we were saying earlier about just getting a collective mass behind a cause, we will get there. Um, and to me, that's something that even though it's not happening right now, if we can get the ball rolling in that direction, really, really excites me. Definitely. I agree. I mean, I think there's just some easy questions that we can ask ourselves as runners. Like if you don't have any friends that run slower than you, why? If your whole running group is Mm -hmm. copy paste of the same person, why? If you know you have friends who run and they refuse to run with you, why? Like, it's not that anyone is asking people to wake up and all of a sudden be a perfect ally, but we don't expect that perfection in our running. We accept that things will be uncomfortable, that things will be hard, that we have to push through them, but that it's worth it. And I think that's how we need to look at diversifying running and specifically distance running, because running isn't not a diverse sport. A ton of people do running. A a ton of people run. We just need to open the door and not just open the door, but walk into their space and be there for when people are ready. To, to join us. Last bit before we wrap up this conversation, it's a question that I ask of many of my guests at the end of podcasts, but what is personally exciting you in running or about running right now? I think I would have answered that question differently a couple weeks ago, but I think that that piece of my answer still plays into this. Um, So personally, I'm excited by the fact that COVID, which from my perspective has been a terribly hard to face reality check about what's important in our our lives. And I'm excited that during COVID, people found running. I think that 
that speaks a lot about our sport, that it was something that people gravitated to when it often felt like we had little to grab hold of. And while it's terrible that it took murder for many runners to wake up to the social injustices that we face in America, I'm excited that it ignited a group of people who know what it means to keep momentum going. Because that's what this movement needs. This movement needs momentum. And every single runner knows what that means when I say that. So I'm excited to see a group of individuals that has grown over the last few months take action to make change, to influence their networks, to diversify our sport, and to not stop until they can put their hands down and say like, whew, okay, <laughs> like I think I did something today. And then do it again tomorrow because that's what we do too. So that, that excites me. Well, Camila, I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. I thank you for your time. I thank you for allowing me to be vulnerable and uncomfortable in this type of conversation. It's one that I hope to have more of moving forward. And I hope that more podcasts ask you to be on their show because I think you've got a lot of great insight and experience to share. So thank you. Thank you so much. This has been really special. So thank you. Right, it's another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of dedicated runners who are committed to building superlative quality, classically stylish, and cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. I train regularly in their Twilight Tank and Reggie Half Tights, staples of their spring collection, which is now available online. And if you're looking for inspiration to stay motivated and get out the door these days, be sure to check out their journal on tracksmith.com and their Instagram feed at tracksmithrunning, where they've been sharing and creating content from around the running world. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out and save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals that your body is giving you. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario, that's my name, when you check out. So go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter the code Mario, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. 
I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at The Morning Shakeout. John Summerford, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.